Good morning, and welcome to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN, where our goal every Sunday is to entertain, enlighten, and expose you to information that can lead to positive change in your life. I'm Larry Hardesty. This morning, we will speak with Michelle L. Sullivan. She's a speaker, philanthropist, and author of Looking Up, How a Different Perspective Turns Obstacles into Advantages. So, as we always suggest, be prepared to take down some valuable information you're here this morning, and we thank you for allowing us to be a part of your Sunday. We'll begin this edition of New York Sports and Beyond after this time out on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond. I'm Larry Hardesty. Michelle L. Sullivan is a globally recognized leader and advisor in social impact speaker and author. During her 30-year career at Caterpillar, she served as president of Caterpillar Foundation and director, corporate social innovation of Caterpillar, Inc. Throughout her time with the foundation, she transformed it from merely transactional to global and strategic. Now, this strategy places the human need first, not as an afterthought of profit. She strongly believes monumental and sustainable change in our largest global challenges can only happen through partnerships and collaboration between public, private, and nonprofit entities. She was honored to give a TED Talk at TED Women 2016. TED is a nonpartisan nonprofit devoted to spreading ideas, usually in the form of short, powerful talks, and she became the first Caterpillar employee to do so. And she is author of Looking Up, How a Different Perspective Turns Obstacles into Advantages. Join me in welcoming Michelle L. Sullivan to New York Sports and Beyond. Hi, Michelle. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm great. I'm doing great. Thanks for joining me on this Sunday morning. Michelle, tell me about your book, Looking Up, How a Different Perspective Turns Obstacles into Advantages. Sure. So, first of all, I was born a little person, so I stand about four feet tall. So, obviously, the title, Looking Up... (laughs) (laughs) relates a little bit to my size since I literally look up to everyone. But it's actually much more than that. You know, my size taught me the best relational posture, which is to look up to everyone because we all have value. And the book is really about that, about how we see people and, you know, that we shouldn't discard people uh, for whatever reason by what you see because we're all much more than what you can see. So, Michelle, how did you learn that? Because clearly, uh, as you mentioned, the challenge you have, uh, people probably didn't treat you fairly or didn't treat you nicely as you were coming up. Sure. You know, throughout our school age years especially, I think everybody can relate to being teased for something, even if the kids had to make it up, (laughs) Mm -hmm, (laughs) which mm -hmm. sometimes they did. You know, you got teased about your ears or how you looked or your name. And I certainly did because of my size. But I also was taught by my parents at a very early age that I'm much more than my size. And as I got into school in kindergarten, the kids definitely told me how different I was. And this was in kindergarten. And I didn't know I was different at that time. This was the first day of kindergarten. And... The boy said, why do you look so funny? Why are you so small? I had no idea what he was talking about. Mm. And before I knew it, I was outside the circle. And what I mean by that is everybody was looking at me, and I wasn't included for the rest of the day. And I think we've all had those moments in life, too, where you didn't feel included. So when I went out to the car that day, and my mom was excited to say, how did it go? I looked at her and I said, is there something wrong with me? Hmm. 
And my mom hesitated for a second, and I've never seen my mom hesitate. And by the way, I was five, and I remember this like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. And my mom probably waited five years for that question. And she said, you know, Michelle, you are going to be smaller than everybody else, most people, but you also can do anything you want, and you're so much more than your size. And you'll learn what I mean by that as you grow. And in second grade then, of course, I wasn't understanding what she was saying. In second grade, we played a math game, and the teacher had flashcards, and whoever gave the answer first got to move to the next desk. And lo and behold, I'm great at math, I thought. And I became known as the smart girl. And this was second grade. Mm. And I started to learn what my mom and dad were telling me, that I am more than just my size. But I also learned that so is everybody else. And that's where it came from. Wow, that's a a powerful lesson. Uh, And just talk a little bit, Michelle, about your parents, because they're interesting in how they shaped you and how they were able to, yes. in a way, prepare you for what you were going through. And as as parents, and believe me, I'm a parent, so I'm, I'm telling you from experience, we don't have the answers. There's no there's no handbook <laughs> to tell you how to how to yeah. do this job. So just talk a little bit about how important they were in preparing you for your your outlook and all the goals you would actually perform in life. Absolutely. You know, just so you know, I was born in the middle '60s. So back then, you had three. TV channels, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the only little people you saw were in the circus or something like that. You didn't see other little people. And, you know, when I was born, the doctor had never given, you know, delivered a little person either, but I was so lucky and blessed that he told my parents, you take her home and you treat her like everybody else, which back mm. then, they didn't do that. And I think my parents would have done that anyway, to be honest, because they're quite resilient. My dad... Uh, was in Tennessee, and he lost his mom at age 13. And then he was raised pretty much by his siblings after that. And my mom grew up 15 miles from the Canadian border in Minnesota, so about as far up as you could go on a farm. And they moved around a lot. And then at, um, early in her teens, she was sent to Peoria, Illinois, to help her with her sister who was going to deliver her second baby. And she went on the bus all by herself through Chicago. (laughs) And I tell that story in the book. And then they met at a race car um, demolition derby in Peoria. Um, My dad was a friend of my mom's brother, and so they met there. And they ended up getting married. And so they've been resilient their whole life as well. They're middle-class working people. My dad worked at Cat Retired. So did I. My sister still works at CAT. My mom worked at the university. And because of the way they started out, you know, in way northern Minnesota or in the hills of Tennessee and losing his mother, you know, that's resiliency, you know, in and of itself. And so they gave me every opportunity. I was, you know, I knew that education was the key. It was very stressed with all my siblings and myself. And they treated me like everybody else, and but they also pushed me to get out there. Mm. You know, you can't hide. And that yeah. was tough because in my younger years, I wanted to hide because every time I went out, everybody stared. Mm. And so I'd hide behind their legs. And then as you get older, you start to understand and you start to get more confidence. And 
you know, I, I did well academically and went on to get a master's degree and had a wonderful 30-year career at Caterpillar. What made you decide to write the book and what made you decide to write it now? You know, that's a good question because all my life people say, Michelle, you're so inspirational and in all the things you've done, you got to write a book. And I think we all have a story, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think mine was really any different. And when I took over the Caterpillar Foundation in 2011, I was 23 years into my career. So I was, you know, in the next seven to eight years going to retire. And I really started thinking about, you know, what's next. And I enjoy public speaking as well. And we worked on poverty in the foundation. And that really sent me all over the globe, you know, both here in the United States with those working and living in poverty and then across the world. And I went into some of the deepest parts, you know, where I go with kids uh, who had class under a tree, Mm. for instance, or they lived in a little hut that had, you know, a dirt floor. And they they were so inspiring to me. I, I was so overwhelmed. And they have no idea how I look up to them because, you know, we all have the same aspirations and dreams. And yet we are very judgmental of people for different reasons. And a lot of times people who are disadvantaged are not respected for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. When they were born into that area, I happened to be born into a middle-class family in the United States. So I was afforded health care and the education and the support that I needed. And yet here are these people who don't have electricity and access to water, a lot of them, and yet they're going to school and have the same aspirations for their children. And so I look up to them. So while my size, I literally look up to people, the figurative position of looking up to everyone, we can leave ourselves open to so much more. We learn more. We read better. We enable more. We experience more. And I would argue we love more. And so I wanted to write the book about the people who I've looked up to in my life and how I work through the foundation and how I lead my life to look up to other people, especially those who are disadvantaged, and that we all should look up to people in that way. Yeah, it's fascinating. The, The first thing that jumps out are your endorsements. Sheryl Sandberg, Bono, and Michael Bloomberg. That's a wide variety of, of personalities right. that you touched through your book. And you know what they all have in common? We've all met through our passion mm. for social impact work. Mm-hmm. And that's why we connected. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, um, I know. It's interesting, isn't it? It is. It's and very we interesting. And do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is true. This is true. Because we look at people, which is the point of your book, right? We look at people as what we see them do for the in the forefront, but we don't know what a lot of people are doing behind the scenes, Michelle. And so when you talk about your you talk about Sheryl Sandberg, you talk about Bruno, you talk about Michael Bloomberg, although we kind of have an idea about some of the things they are doing away from what we know them to do as their number one idea if we were playing a password and we mentioned their name. Say Mayor Bloom Michael Bloomberg, you'd say mayor. Bruno, you'd say rock star, right? So aside from that, uh yeah. it's it's just a perfect example of people making up not what they do, but who they are. Is not what they do, right? Exactly. 
Exactly. And we all can play a role in social impact in today's world. And it's either, either your skills or your passion, your time, your money, or all of the above, or just letting them know that you're here for them. And we all have moments in our life where rarely in life do you ever succeed at something all by yourself. Think about mm-hmm. it. <laughs> yeah. It's true. There's a lot of people behind anything that you do, like what you're doing with your children. You know, you're supporting them in every way. And they realize that. They may not realize it right now, but later, you know, they will. And so we also have to acknowledge, you know, all the people who have helped us get to where we are. Because I wouldn't be anywhere without a whole village. And I talk about that in the book, the concept of the village, all the people that, you know, help you get where you are. And then the closest people to you is what I call the kitchen table. Whenever Mm. something really, really good happens to you or really bad, say you get a bad diagnosis medically, isn't there just a couple people you talk to first? Yeah. And you have to get your head around it before you make it broader to your village of people. And I learned that concept by having dinner every night at the kitchen table. You know, our family would have dinner, and my parents would say, what happened during the day? Of course, when you're a kid, the most exciting thing would be when somebody puked. (laughs) And you'd say, oh, Johnny puked today. (laughs) And you'd give all the details. Uh And then they'd laugh, and they'd go, okay, so what else happened today? (laughs) Quickly. (laughs) So the concept, yeah, of the kitchen table is vitally important. And your kitchen table and your village changes depending on the circumstance and also the time in your life. Hmm. Don't you have people who you haven't talked to in five years, and when you talk to them, it felt like you were never apart? Yeah. It, it's fascinating because, because Michelle, that's one of the things that because of economics in our society, we're losing, aren't we? We're losing that meeting at the kitchen table. We're losing that yeah. uh, interaction with our young people between us working and them with their uh, cell phones and yeah, I, I know I sound like the old guy, get off my lawn, but, uh, the <laughs> lack of, uh, the lack of interaction, you know, even when you watch them and they are sitting alongside somebody, Michelle, and they're texting the person next to them rather than just turning yeah. and looking at them. <laughs> we're, we're, we're just losing right. that interaction, aren't we? We are, but you know, we're in the time right now. We're in the middle of this pandemic and mm-hmm. I live in Illinois. We were the second state to be locked down. So, we're in, we're well into week number six, and they just told us we're going to go to the end of May, which is another five weeks. <laughs> yeah. And everybody is struggling because we're, number one, we're not meant not to talk and hug each other. I mean, that's, this, this lockdown isn't natural for us, but there's a lot of good things happening from it. First of all, to your point, you now are talking to each other in the house. You're eating together. You're also talking with your closest friends and your family, whether it's on the phone or Zoom or something like that, because we have extra time on our hands. And we're also realizing that we're all vulnerable and we better appreciate everybody. And everybody's appreciating the teachers unlike I've ever seen before. This is true. (laughs) And our hairstylist. You know, I'm glad we're not on video right now because my hair has never been quite this long. And look how much we're appreciating everybody. 
and how we're coming together as one. And if you listen to the song, We Are the World, I happened to come across it the other day from decades ago, and it's so relevant today. You know, we are the world. We come together as one. And this is even more than 9-11 because this pandemic is impacting the world, and they have shown that we are all connected. And if you look at all the good deeds happening, it's just an uplifting time when we feel some anxiety about not being able to go out and have our usual life. But it has slowed us down, and that's what your point is. I think there's a lot of good coming out of this. You're right. You're right. My guest is philanthropic pioneer, author, speaker, Michelle L. Sullivan. Next on New York Sports and Beyond, the kitchen table is more than about a place to eat. We'll explore that on 98.7 ESPN. Thanks for stopping by New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Let's continue our discussion with speaker, philanthropist, and author, Michelle L. Sullivan. Michelle, you made an interesting uh, comment in your book about finding a new line of sight. And I think that really ties into what you're talking about uh, right now during this pandemic, because we have the opportunity to reevaluate where we are, right? This is almost like I was sharing with somebody a couple of weeks ago, Michelle, that this is almost like New Year's Eve, right? Where you're looking at the opportunity, you know, you sit back, you evaluate where you are. And you have kind of the opportunity now to think about making some changes or making some adjustments or doing some things differently. Right. So that's another way, I guess, of of using turning this negative, which is COVID-19 and obviously all the depth and, and all the change that's brought to our life. That's the negative part. But trying to make a best of it. And I guess that's one of the other things we could do. Right. Oh, absolutely. Because when you think about it, this is are you thinking of all the things you're missing? You know, this is your perspective. The book is a lot about perspective. Are you looking at all the things you're missing? Uh, our hair appointment, sports, uh, going out to eat, all that. Or are you looking at, wow, I'm getting all these things done around the house that I never had time to. A lot of people are working from home, but a lot of times working from home, you're not quite as busy or hectic as when you go to work all day and then come home and try and get everything done. And around my neighborhood, I am seeing so many people walking with their kids and walking the dog and, you know, they're, they're relaxing. And because before we were all running around like chickens with our heads cut off Mm -hmm. and, you know, that can continue. And now everybody has been forced to have a different perspective and find a new line of sight. So are you looking at what you're missing? Or to your point, are you looking at all the good things that are happening, you know, right now? And I choose to look at what's the good things that, you know, we're spending time with our parents and our family and all of that, that we wouldn't have otherwise. And so now here's that opportunity, Michelle, to, as as we're talking about, Change that, change that perspective, as you say in your book, okay. find a new line of sight, right? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Are you looking at, at the problems? Just like if you walk in a room or something happens at work or at home, do you see a problem or do you see an opportunity? Mm. Oh, well, that broke. I was going to get a new one anyway, and I'm going to go get this kind now or something like that. And also, I'll tell you what, I think people are going to have a hard time going back to the rat race. We're all antsy to get back to normal, and I'm, I'm right there with you. 
Mm-hmm. But I am also going to argue that we are going to have a hard time going back to the way our life was and wishing that we had more of that downtime where it wasn't so crazy, where you had to be 10 places with the kids and no dinner together, you know, and the animals, your pets are certainly going to miss you being at home. Yeah, of course. And yeah. so enjoy this time. This would never have happened. You would not have all this downtime or togetherness if we didn't have a pandemic. Michelle, tell me about the Caterpillar Foundation. Sure. You know, that's the love of my life, too. That I know. Is the philanthropic, <laughs> that is a, the philanthropic arm of the company. And so we uh, invested where we had facilities around the world. And Caterpillar is, a, as you know, a global company. Mm-hmm. And we're, uh, we were uh, in our very strategic and influential. And I've been retired now a year from there. And they're doing, you know, continuing doing great work in poverty and also workforce readiness because, you know, there's a lot of uh, trades and other jobs that we need to really make sure that get supported. And a lot of those, um, we can help people who are in a situation where they necessarily can't go get the education themselves, but the foundation can foundation can make investments so that we can help those people along. It was the most rewarding job I ever had. And I knew that I couldn't go back to the business side after I took that job. Mm. And so I knew in 2011, that would be the last job I had at Caterpillar. Wow. I was very honored. I was the first female to have it. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was the most rewarding position I've ever had by far. Wow. How'd you get started there again? So when I got my master's degree, I interviewed at Caterpillar because that's where I wanted to work. I knew it was a global company, and I could have a, you know many different types of jobs there. My dad worked there, and my sister's there. So it's, we're, a fa- we're a typical Caterpillar family. Mm-hmm. And I had different positions in marketing, IT, product support, new product introductions, and the foundation job came open because there maybe had only been four or five people since 1952 that had the job. Wow. It never turns over because it's, it's a tremendous position in many ways. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I missed it. And then lo and behold, in 2011, it came open, and I had 23 years with the company. So I applied for it. It's one of the most applied for jobs, you know, in all of Caterpillar. And I was fortunate enough to get an interview but I had thought about that job for a long time, and I'd always go down and visit with the folks. And so I told them, I think, you know, with our influence around the world in terms of building societal infrastructure, the roads, the bridges, the schools, etc., the foundation, we should speak to it, that we're impacting the social infrastructure, mm. which is the education, the basic human needs. And that we could use our, uh, you know, good name of Caterpillar. And if we start talking about why water is so important, especially to those in poverty who don't have it, because the girls are walking for water all day, not going to school, then other people will also realize what an important issue that is. And so that's how I talked in the interview. And lo and behold, I got the job. 
Mm. And I kept it, you know, to the end of 2018. You miss it? I, I do miss the work. I miss the people, absolutely. Do I miss uh, work as a as a whole, you know, the red tape? You know how work is. Yes. Um, I don't miss that part. But absolutely, I miss the partners that we worked with. I, I miss the people that I got to know that we were helping. And I obviously miss, you know, the people at work. But... Now I'm doing, I, I think I'm making a social impact in other ways, like the book of looking up and how it really applies to all parts of your life, whether it's work, home, uh, sports, or whatever hobby that you have. Your perspective, I believe, is one of the most influential pieces to your success. Mm. And then if you always think the positive way and look and, and see that people who are different than you that you can learn from them, that is the most monumental piece of all, and that you can make a difference in someone else's life as well. That's the voice of Michelle L. Sullivan. She's my guest on New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. She's the author of Looking Up, How a Different Perspective Turns Obstacles into Advantages. When we return on this edition of New York Sports and Beyond, the challenges of being born with a rare form of dwarfism and the insecurities that can cause to become a sought-after speaker. We'll explore that next on 98.7 ESPN. Let's conclude my discussion with author, philanthropist, Michelle L. Sullivan on New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. Michelle, you like a little baseball? I love baseball. It's my favorite sport. <laughs> You're missing it now, aren't you? <laughs> I really miss it. You know, yeah. uh, I spent last year finishing the book and everything, so it felt like I had a full-time job. And so the book came out in February and I had all these plans with my friends that we were going to go to St. Louis Cardinal games. Mm. And obviously that's come to a halt. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I'm very excited. I don't know when and if we'll get it this year, but I'm, I know that they're working on it and, and they're working on, you know, how much social distancing we all should do. So we just have to be patient and, it also makes you appreciate baseball a lot more because we don't have it. <laughs> You're right. And, and you know what? It, it's so interesting because when the NFL draft uh, over the past couple of days, uh, it's so different now because everybody's in a different place. You've got one anchor in the studio. You've got all these different analysts in their homes. You've got the players in their homes with their family. And it, it's, it's so, yeah. it's so different, but you know what, this this might be, uh, stealing a line from your book, our new line of sight for a while, uh, where we are kind of, you know, separate but together in a weird kind of way. Right. Yeah, and you know, I watched some of the draft last night, and what I liked was it was certainly different having everybody in a different place, and, you know, you had to wait for somebody else not to talk so the other person could talk. But what I thought was great was they were in there, their casual clothes sitting most for the most part on a couch or in the kitchen mm -hmm. with their families and not all the other, all the other hoopla that happens, you know, leading up to that, that they have to do. They actually spent these days at home with the people that are closest to them and sharing these last few days with them because their life's going to change forever once this all gets released and then they won't be at home like they were. Mm -hmm. 
That's right. It's, so it's, I, I thought it was great to see, you know, they'd stand up and, and who did they hug first? Their mom and dad's usually. Yeah. And their right. siblings. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it was more casual and it was about the family unit, you know, and I thought it was great. I, I missed some of the other stuff that you didn't get, but at the end of the day, I thought it brought it back home. It did, because normally, uh, Michelle, they're knocking down the commissioner, Roger Goodell. <laughs> yeah. He's, he exactly. ends up being the first he person. He still his booze, didn't he? <laughs> it, was, it was a little different. Yeah. It was a little different. Yep. Um, exactly. Michelle, you got to give me the secret. You, uh, and you've mm-hmm. shared it brilliantly through our chat this morning about your beginnings, uh, being a low person. The challenges that had mm-hmm. the challenges, how people looked at you, how you how you dealt with that. How did you become so comfortable to be such a a, a sought after speaker? How did that come about? Well, my parents said I was born with the gift of gab, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, well, I learned this at a really young age. I noticed that people would be a little uncomfortable around me, and even today they are. They don't know what to say or, you know, we are a bit political correct these days, right? You're always afraid you're going to offend somebody. And I think we've gone way too far on that. Mm-hmm. But when I was young, I noticed that if I started talking first, because I was smaller and yet I talked like whatever grade I was in. So people were kind of confused. And so if I started talking first, joking about myself or the weather or something, it broke the ice. Mm. And I just developed that as I grew, I believe, and it just became natural to me. And also, you know, at 13, I started going to Johns Hopkins for orthopedic surgeries. And Johns Hopkins is, you know, one of the major research hospitals in the world. People go there as a last resort, life or death, literally. And I remember having roommates while I was there having hip surgery. And I had to go quite a bit and also spent months there. And these people would be in there with things that I never knew could happen to the human body. Mm. And they have no answers. They're there as a last resort. And the only thing I'm there for is because I had a bad hip. <laughs> wow. And I, I it, it profoundly impacted me that... I am a very fortunate person in so many ways to the country I was born into, to the family I was born into. Uh, as I said, you know, the health care, the education, and I had the support I needed. And it just, I am the most fortunate person you've ever met. And that's why I always look up. And my family was a huge role in that. And I also want to return that to everybody uh, and we all should have a chance to thrive because that's what we all want. It's not about how many things you can buy or anything, but you know, that you get the chance to do what you want to do and that we all help each other as we're doing, you know, during this pandemic. So I just, certain things happened to me at a very young age that really opened my eyes. I forget that I'm little until people remind me when I go out, whether they stare or say something, then I get reminded, (laughs) but it's not, it's not who I am. It's just, it's something I have, but it's not Uh who I am. You know, just like, um, other things that you see in people 
or if they have a lot of money or don't have any money. It's not who they are. It's you have to get to know them and then glean from them what you what value and how they make you a better person and, and what you can do for them. I'm really a servant leader when I you know, was a leader at Caterpillar. It was all about what can I do for you and showing people what I see in them and really having them utilize it and optimize it even when they couldn't see it themselves. It's, um, you know, what's, it, it, it's exciting to hear you talk about, and, and we all have it, all right? We all have the chance to write our own story, right? We, we all have that in our control. Yeah. As you mm-hmm. said, we all have a story. Mm-hmm. We all have that. But for you, yeah, I guess I it, it was, it was really exciting in the sense of, because there was nothing expected of you, Michelle. You, you understand what I'm saying? Not in a negative yeah. way, <laughs> but, but, but just yeah. in the sense of, you know, the challenges you had and you used that. And so there had to be a little excitement in the sense that you, you know, I can define my own path more, uh, an easier, yeah. uh, maybe a tougher way to do it than, than, than normal folks per se, quote unquote. Right. But, but still you, yeah. and, and you, you've embraced it and you just seem like you love it. I do. You know, you run with what you have. I can't True. change my size, but what I can do, I can influence my future, and I knew I could influence my legacy, and so can everybody else. And at the end of the day, you have to look deep and think, what is it I truly have control over? What and who can help me uh, with the stuff that I can't control? And then bring those things together and then do the same for other people, because I get more out of helping others than anything else I do. Anything I accomplish on my own, I get more out of seeing people succeed in whatever they want and also understanding those who are not as fortunate as myself. Um, You know, there's a lot of poverty here in the United States. This pandemic has really shown that there's a lot of kids whose only meals in the United States is what they get at school. And so if you look and listen on the news, a lot of people have come together so that these children are getting their meals even while they're not in school. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And I think it's opened up a lot of eyes. Mm -hmm. And so I like learning about new things and challenges because I think I become a more empathetic person and understand more about what other people are dealing with that I don't have to deal with. Mm. How about that? In my TED Talk, um, I have a TED Talk, Asking for Help is a Strength, Not a Weakness. Mm-hmm. And I talk about that very topic. You know, we can't, you can't walk in my size one shoes. <laughs> but <laughs> what we can do, what we can do, though, we can walk side by side. And I can support you, and you can support me. Mm-hmm. And diversity, whatever diversity, experience or whatever, you know, is a blessing to us. And we really need to gravitate to that and not look at our, at our differences as a separator. It should be something that brings us together. Exactly. Exactly. And just for people who don't yeah. know, Ted is a nonpartisan nonprofit devoted to spreading ideas, right? So what was it like speaking to the women right. in 2016 at that organization? Well, that was, you know, I tell you, uh, it's exciting when you get to do a TED Talk. But I tell you, it's quite uh, overwhelming when it's your turn and you walk out on that red dot. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know,
you know, it was important because I do view asking for help as a strength, not a weakness. And I have mm-hmm. to ask for help a lot with my size and, and my disability. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to ask for help every day, so I'm used to it. But there's all kinds of help that you have to ask for. And people, some people are struggling with being at home right now with anxiety and missing what they had and everything. And don't be afraid to reach out and get, you know, help if you need it because it's always there for you. And the TED Talk was about, you know, not placing people in silos, that we need to break those down and really get to know people. And I definitely gravitate to people who do that, who are involved in social impact work and have a passion for that and also to make the world a better place and not be so judgmental by what you see. Because I can walk in a store and not get waited on because, Mm. you know, they think that either I don't need anything or I can't afford it or they're just uncomfortable with me. So I always just walk up and start talking myself. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it, it it helps them because then they won't be afraid to say something wrong. So right. to me, by talking first, we're starting off on the right foot. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That really does. Mm-hmm. Um, together, stronger. Michelle L. Sullivan, tell me about that. Sure. So with the foundation, when I came in, we really, at the beginning, were transactional and we wrote the checks and, we really didn't measure real well what the impact was and what was the grant doing what it was supposed to do. And also our partner partners, the not-for-profits played, of course, the vital role in the work because they were the actual implementers of all the grants. We were the funder, but they did all the work. And so we really created a collaborative platform and we called it Together Stronger And you can see all the work on togetherstronger.com. And it really emphasized the partnership uh, between us and our partners and the people that we were serving and how successful it can be when people work together. And not every grant, for instance, would go according to plan. Say they were working on uh, some type of classroom platform and the the students didn't quite have the change in knowledge that they were expecting. And instead of just canceling the grant, we would work with the partners to say, well, was the curriculum the, the right curriculum for who was in the class or did we need different type of students? In other words, were we targeting the wrong students or did we, the students we were targeting, did we not have the right curriculum? So we would change things up to try and make it work. And that's what Together Stronger is about. We wouldn't just cancel the grant because, mm-hmm. you know, there could be tweaks that we could make and then they'd be very successful. And that, that happened with the grants all around the world. Michelle, tell us how we can get your book, Looking Up, How a Different Perspective Turns Obstacles into Advantages. Yeah, thank you so much. If you go to lookingup.com, uh, about the book is there and also more about me and also some of the content in the book and keep looking up because the view is great and enjoy <laughs> this time that we have at home because I've never had this happen to me where you have all this time on your hands. <laughs> yeah, really? This is true. 
This is true. Michelle, yeah. it's, been, it's been great chatting with you this morning. It's been great meeting you. Continued success because here's what I know about you. You may be home, but you're busy doing something, planning something for the future. I am busy. <laughs> I know you are. Thank so, you so much. So you just okay. keep, keep, keep moving on, and we will talk soon. Thanks for a couple of minutes. Thank you. Bye-bye. That concludes this edition of New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. We thank you for listening. We'll join you during the week on ESPN New York tonight and right back here next Sunday on New York Sports and Beyond. For my all-world producer, the legendary Ray Santiago, I'm Larry Hardesty. The conversation continues right here on 98.7 ESPN New York.